If you're anything like me, you spent your childhood assuming that one day you'd meet your Prince Charming. You'd get married, you'd have a nice house in the suburbs, a dog, a career, and a couple of kids. It never crossed your mind that Prince Charming wouldn't come along, or that tragically you'd lose him before his time, or that your marriage wouldn't work out, or even that your biological clock would have other ideas. Or maybe you never really wanted that sort of happily ever after. Maybe you never wanted a man, but you did know you always wanted children. We're living in an age where for the first time, women can embrace motherhood on their own terms. They no longer have to put their lives on hold waiting for the right man, or settling for someone who they know isn't right for them, just so they can become a mother. More women than ever before are embarking on the journey to become what's known as a solo mother by choice. And while for a lot of us it doesn't feel like a choice, but more a necessity, the bottom line is there are now options for you to be able to fulfill your dreams of motherhood if the traditional route isn't playing out as expected. The No Need for Prince Charming podcast will share stories of Australian women who have successfully become solo mothers by choice. They each have a unique story as to why they decided to pursue motherhood in this way and the journey they had to go through to make this dream a reality. The hope is that by sharing these stories, you'll have the knowledge and the confidence to embark on this amazing journey yourself if you determine it's the right one for you. In the words of Walt Disney, all of our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. All you need is faith, trust, and a little bit of pixie dust. Welcome to today's episode of the No Need for Prince Charming podcast, brought to you by City Fertility. City Fertility have proudly created Rainbow Fertility, which is Australia's first dedicated fertility and IVF service provider to cater exclusively for the LGBTI community. Rainbow Fertility are uniquely qualified to help you achieve your dreams of parenthood, so visit Rainbow Fertility today to learn more about how they can support you on your journey. So welcome to this episode, Lisa. I would love to start by learning a little bit about who were you before you decided to become a mum? Thank you for having me. Uh, so, yeah, I'm Lisa. I am from Adelaide in my pre-mum or non-mum life. I'm a junior primary special education teacher. Ah, another um, teacher. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I've been teaching for about nine years, I think, and absolutely love it. Can't imagine doing anything else. Um, I also loved to dance and I did a bit of... Um, like aerial acrobatics, aerial hoop uh, oh, wow. in my in my uh, outside of work hours. Absolutely no time for that anymore. But yeah, um, yes, I used to um, travel a lot before I had uh, my daughter. Um, yeah, woman of the world. Yes. And what made you decide to become a mum by yourself then? I think it's kind of that classic story of I had always known I wanted to be a mum right from a young child. That's really all I ever wanted to be. Mm -hmm. And I did the general dating in my, you know, early, mid, late 20s, but towards the end of my 20s, I realised I was really just dating because I wanted to have children. Dating um, for sperm, yep. <laughs> exactly. Not because I actually enjoyed it. Like it started to feel like a chore mm. that I didn't really want to do because I had a wonderful, happy, independent life and I didn't really want to mess that up. But I definitely wanted children. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had always been sort of something that I'd, 
made the throwaway comments of, oh, you know, if I'm still single in my 30s, I'll just have kids on my own, not actually really knowing that that was possible or how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I was approaching 30, I thought, you know what, I'd always said sort of 35 was my age limit. Um, but I was just getting more and more sure that I was ready to have kids. Um, so I decided that I would, um, go ahead with doing it on my own. Um, started doing lots of research, uh, teacher, we love research and having plans. So I had all of that sorted, um, and set myself like a few years plan of, okay, like this year I'm going to get a family car. The next year I'm going to get a family house. And the year after that, I'm going to have a baby. Very sensible. And and I did. I did it all in that exact order every year. Um, Yeah. And did you tell many people what you were planning to do? Everybody. (laughs) Everybody (laughs) in my life, my my family, my friends, my work colleagues, my boss, absolutely everybody knew. I was very open the whole process. Um, was yeah, everyone talked. supportive or did you get any strange responses? Everybody was incredibly supportive. Mm. I kind of was not sure about how um, some people would react, but I honestly was very lucky that I did not get anything except support um and mostly just people being like of course like you absolutely should be a mom so this is amazing this is so brave this is wonderful go you it was yeah really lovely and really just affirming that doing this on my own I would still have a wonderful support network which I do mm-hmm and did you, when you decided that you were going to do it, did you feel brave and wonderful and amazing going through that as well? Or, um, I guess it was a bit daunting, but I also kind of just thought, you know what, I've been very independent for a long time. I do everything else by myself. Why couldn't I, why wouldn't I do this by myself as well? And so you finally, you had the house, you had the car. Yes, had the dog. <laughs> oh, had the dog, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got the dog too, yeah. Maybe it's a pretty, pretty good <laughs> Yes, that was get the house, fill it with the dog while I'm waiting for a baby. Good practice though, isn't it? Especially when yes. they're yeah. And how did you go about actually conceiving? So I was intending to um, start out with IUI. Mm-hmm. I I always knew I was going to go through a clinic. Um, so started out the general process of, you know, having my AMH tested and having all of those blood tests and scans and appointments and things. Um, I was still relatively young in the fertility world. I was 31 mm. when I started that process. Um, so I just got a referral for our sort of main fertility clinic uh, here in Adelaide that I knew had a decent donor program um, and that I knew somebody who was at the time pregnant through that clinic. So I was feeling good about their success rates, I guess. Um, So, yeah, I intended to do a couple of rounds of IUI 
and then if necessary um move to IVF but mm -hmm. in the end I went straight to um straight to IVF oh okay they uh found some things in our family history uh with the, my genetic counseling and so they recommended going straight to IVF and doing genetic testing and sex selection of the embryos. Okay. Which, um, you know, had to go through whole ethics board and, um, and all sorts. And so I kind of let that make the decision for me that, you know what, if they're recommending that that's what I do, that's what I'll do. Were you aware uh, of that, uh, the genetic situation before starting this process? No, um, and it's tricky because it's still just a a possible um, genetic link. It's not one that they could prove or disprove. So hmm. um, I'm fine, um, but they think my family may carry an X-linked condition. So females carry it but aren't affected, but males would be affected. So the aim was to do sex selection so that I would have a female. Um, wow. Yeah. I think you're the first person I've met that's actually gone through that. So I'm, a, I'm assuming that was probably quite a process through the ethics board, given it's not normally something that people would be allowed to do in Australia. Yeah. So I personally didn't actually have to go through the process with that, um, but I had, I had to have lots of extra blood tests and um, chromosome testing and, all sorts for myself mm -hmm. and then the clinic's genetic counsellor went through their board of senior geneticists and I had to have a meeting with them and go through all of the sort of legal side of it and what would happen for male embryos versus female embryos. Um, so it also meant that I would only be able to do a freeze-all cycle so that they could yeah. um, biopsy the embryos and freeze them and then wait for the genetic results um, before doing any transfers. Mm -hmm. I never actually got to that stage because I never made any embryos that were high enough quality to be tested. So okay. <laughs> I actually went through all of that and all of the, you know, sudden change in plans, the sudden change in cost from IUI to IVF and, um, all of sort of the stress of that and it ended up being irrelevant in the end. Wow. Um, that would have been probably quite tough to deal with mentally as well. Then you sort of see yourself on a path and then it changes and changes. It was. Um, and it also meant, so my first round of IVF, um, all, I, I had decent numbers. I had 13 eggs and I think 11 um, fertilised and by day three, I got a phone call to say that um, all of the embryos had significant fragmenting. Mm. So when the cells divide, they don't divide cleanly. They kind of break off and split apart um, and it impacts the quality of the embryo. So that was sort of a prepare yourself for bad news phone call um, that at the time none of them looked like they were going to make it. Wow. Um, which was devastating because I had been thinking, you know, I'm, I'm young, I don't have fertility issues, um, I had decent numbers, I thought everything was going to be fine and then it wasn't. 
and I was really not prepared for that. Um, and by day five, yep, none of them had made it. Uh, day six, one of the embryos pulled through enough to freeze but not great quality um, and definitely not good enough quality to biopsy because they have to take some of the cells out to test. So for the next round, um, I had to then decide if I would try to go for a freeze-all cycle again um, mm -hmm. and test any embryos or if I wasn't likely to make embryos that could be tested, should I roll the dice and risk a fresh transfer um, and know that it's possible I could have a child with a, a genetic condition, um, sort of unknown what, what that would be like. Um, I decided to go for it and have a fresh transfer um, and just say, you know, whatever happens, happens. I would rather have the possibility of having a child, whatever the outcome. Yeah. Um, and luckily I did because that fresh transfer was my daughter um, mm -hmm. and she was the only embryo from that round that made it. So um, I may not have had any to freeze or test that round either. So she was just a little miracle that that made it then and very luckily a so far healthy um female child which is what they were going to to do the genetic screening for anyway and that's what I got and so did you end up finding out her gender once you were successfully pregnant yes so I did the um nipped test at I think 10 or 11 weeks and yeah, found out then. Yeah. So had a little, uh, nice little gender reveal party with some, the doctor told a friend of mine the results and but she baked me a cake with the sprinkles inside to cut into. Oh. And yeah, it was lovely. And just a double bonus. I mean, I would have been happy with a boy, of course, but I always wanted a little girl. And then knowing that that was my best chance at having a healthy um child as well was yeah a double bonus it's an interesting scenario because had you tried to have a child with a partner you probably wouldn't be aware of any of this either would you no and even you know aside from that when I did the genetic testing for myself I you know we're, we're all carriers of something really mm. but you know the two conditions that I carry are fatal in infancy or early childhood um so they're you know pretty severe things that now I think if I ever were to have a child with a partner in the future which is not likely but you know still a possibility um I would definitely want to be making sure there was genetic testing there as well yeah just the the level of detail and awareness that we get as a result of this path that's kind of like an added bonus that we didn't weren't didn't know we needed isn't it absolutely and even then down to you know I always presumed I didn't have any fertility issues but actually I seem to have egg quality issues mm -hmm. and quite likely would have needed to go through IVF regardless of how I'd tried to conceive but I never would have known that um, until likely much later and much more heartache than 
than just going straight to IVF. Yeah, so at least you had some good doctors that did all the right things at the early stages so you knew that you were going straight to IVF and you didn't, you know, spend some time doing IUI and the, the heartbreak that would have led to as well now that you know what you know. Yes, absolutely. It's, yeah, would have been a lot of a lot of wasted time and money and heartbreak that, that I managed to avoid, thankfully. And how did you go selecting your donor? Uh, I found that quite an overwhelming um, task, which is funny now thinking back on it because I can barely remember, um, you know, many of the details about it but at the time it was so all-consuming and I um so my donor is from um California Cryobank Mm -hmm. so their website is just full of donors but then trying to filter out who is Australian compatible um with the ID release and then who has vials available or who has family limits available and they never seemed to match up Um, and then you just get such a huge amount of information that when I first started looking, I would just pour through it and I would have notebooks where I'd write down and, you know, rank them in different qualities and, um, you know, all of that. And in the end, it got to kind of a, well, who actually is available for, um, for use now, yeah, who has family allocations available, who has files available, um, and that really narrowed it down. And I originally had a different donor reserved um, waiting for vials to become available and then they just didn't and didn't and didn't. Um, And then the donor that I ended up using, I don't know if I just hadn't found him in my searches previously or if he was newly released but um one day when I was yeah sort of looking through and thinking if I keep waiting for that other donor I'm never going to get to start the process and then I saw this one and he kind of ticked all of the boxes um I like many of us I wanted a donor with um some similar physical characteristics to me yeah um I also really liked the idea of uh, I'm not fabulous on the sort of math science side of things. I'm much more of um, a creative English-type um, person. Yeah. Uh, so I liked the idea that he had studied, you know, engineering and favourite subject was maths and finance and all sorts and so I thought great between the two of us hopefully we'll give her kind of well-rounded background Mm -hmm. um and little details like uh his favorite sport is the same sport that um my brother plays and that my family's really into and so I knew she would be brought up in that kind of um area that can then also be something that she knows of her donor Um, had you know lovely responses to the essay questions yeah and now I know he was clearly the perfect donor because otherwise it wouldn't be Gracie and the world would be a much worse place without her in it oh 
How long did it take for you to get the vials once you'd selected him and to then be able to start the process? Uh, I think it was about three weeks, maybe. And did you get a few good. so you can do multiple rounds or how did that side work? Yeah, I got three. Um, so I've used two. I've still got one in the freezer that will probably stay in the freezer. I'm just paying endless storage fees for it now. Yeah. You already uh, think yeah. that it's just one and done? Yeah. Yeah, I'm 98% certain it's one and done. Is that what you thought going into it or has that changed? I think before I had her, I sort of tossed up between, you know, kids shouldn't outnumber the parents. So if I'm just one parent, I should only have one child to then thinking, well, she's only going to have one parent. So it would be really nice to have a brother or sister. And I'm really close with my brother. So I kind of wanted that for her too. Mm -hmm. um, but then I had a horrible pregnancy um, and then I'm sure I'll get into this more later, but she was uh, born prematurely and um, very nearly wasn't born alive. Um, oh, wow. So I don't think I could go through the anxiety of that again um, yeah. or go through a pregnancy being that sick while also caring for a toddler. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So I think we will most likely just be just be the two of us. And no one's outnumbering anyone, so Exactly. So pregnancy wasn't great? No. Uh I think I had just about every pregnancy complication you can think of. Um hor I well I started the pregnancy um, with ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome um, mm -hmm. and a little hospital stay with that because I was very sick with that. Um, so I feel like a pregnancy that starts out that sick is not, <laughs> not a great omen for the rest of it. Um, yeah. And it wasn't. I'm not sure at what point the sickness changed from the OHSS to morning sickness, but I was sick all day, every day for about the first four months, I think, um, which, you know, thank goodness everybody, particularly everyone in my building at work, knew that I was pregnant because there is no way I could have hidden that. Um, I imagine that's really hard when you're surrounded by children all day as well. And have to yes. Be on. You can't just hide in your office at home like others can. Yeah, no, and can't always even just leave the classroom when you're going to be sick either. So, oh. yeah, <laughs> it was it was not not fun. Um, and then I just started to um, get over that, and then I had COVID mm. in pregnancy, um, and I had found out at my 13 week scan that I was at very high risk for preeclampsia um, okay. and that I had low levels of a placenta protein. So then I was having to take extra medication um, for that and knew from then on that it was sort of a high-risk pregnancy. Um, I had shocking back pain, like it, I 
kind of think 20 something weeks um my back and sciatic went out so badly that I couldn't walk for a few days um which is awful when you live alone as well um I actually had to you know be driven home from work and helped to the bathroom and needed a walker um luckily my family has you know a wheelchair a walker a walking stick a shower chair all of that um so yep I had to have that lots of time off of work with that and terrible back and sciatic pain for the whole rest of the pregnancy um I had some bleeding in my late 20 week I think about 29 weeks um, bleeding in a hospital trip. Um, yeah, the morning sickness came back after that. I had gestational diabetes. I just feel like I copped it all. If it can happen, it happened. <laughs> it happened, exactly. So, yeah, pregnancy was not my favourite, uh, not my favourite time. I can definitely understand not wanting to do that with a toddler, yeah. Yeah, I I don't actually know how I would possibly function. Yeah. Just interrupting this episode for a quick word from our sponsors. Not only have City Fertility sponsored this episode, they are also extending a very generous 20% off discount for all of my listeners. That's 20% off IUI, IVF, ICSI, as well as six months complimentary egg, sperm and embryo storage. If you're just starting out or about to undergo treatment to make your baby dreams come true, Head to the show notes for my discount code and a link to their website for more information. And then she decided to join us early. How did that go happen? Yes. So it was um, a couple of days after Christmas and I went to my routine uh, 34-week appointment with my obstetrician um, and I thought I was developing the start of preeclampsia because I'd suddenly had a lot of um, swelling in my legs and blood pressure had risen significantly. So I went into that appointment expecting that's what was happening. Um, And the obstetrician had sort of asked me about movements and I had said, oh, look, I've been feeling her a bit less, um, but, you know, it's, it's been a busy few days and it's you know she's getting bigger I think she's just running out of room like I feel her every day just you know not as much as I used to maybe this is her new pattern and thankfully I had a very wonderful switched on OB who didn't believe that um and was concerned and sent me straight to the hospital for monitoring Mm -hmm. um and when they were doing the CTG, the heart rate monitoring, uh, Gracie's heart rate kept dropping um, like quite significantly and taking a very, very long time to pick back up again. Mm-hmm. So they were quite concerned about that, um, that she was clearly in distress, but they couldn't see why. Um, I wasn't having contractions. I wasn't you know, in labour or anything that would noticeably cause her to be in distress like that. Uh, So they admitted me for um, continued monitoring 
and it kept happening overnight. Um, so the next morning the OB came in and sort of said, look, you know, we still don't know why this is happening. We're going to send you um, for a, a thorough scan and see what's, you know, see what's going on and then we'll make a plan. But um, just in case, they gave me the steroid injections for her lungs. Mm -hmm. So typically they try and do that 24 hours apart, two doses. Um, I had two doses 12 hours apart because they didn't think they could wait 24. Um, so that's sort of the moment when it was when you start thinking, okay, we might really be having a baby. Um, and... But then everything looked, you know, looked okay on the scan. Um, you know, she still had um, decent like, blood flow. She was still moving. Um, but her heart rate just kept dropping on the monitoring. Um, so waiting around then sort of all day to find out what the plan was. Was I having her? Was I not? Were we going to keep monitoring? Um and, of course, you know, when my OB was due back at the hospital but then she got pulled into a delivery and then another delivery. And How dare other people have babies? Stop it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, I mean, I felt sorry for her because by the time she got to see me was about 14 hours after I'd seen her there in the morning. Um, but she kind of came in and, and she sat on the edge of my bed and said, look, I don't want to be morbid but. I think if we don't take her out, you're not going to have a live baby to take home. Mm. Um, and that was really confronting to hear that. Mm. Um, it's still hard to think about. Um, and, you know, look, I was sold. I, I trusted her. I trusted that whatever she thought was the best plan of action, that's what we would do. Um, so when she said... We're going to have a C-section um, first thing in the morning. Yep, that's that's fine. We do whatever we need to do to um, get her here safely. Yeah. But then it was a pretty stressful night thinking, okay, things are bad enough that we need to take her out, but we've got to wait till the morning. Um, what if something happens before then? Yeah. Can we just do it now so I don't have to wait? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, so knew we were going to, you know, C-section first thing in the morning. Luckily, um, and because I was staying at a private hospital, but luckily when I had chosen which hospital to birth at, the fact that this one had a level five special care nursery was one of the things that I thought, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to need that, but that's a great feature to have just in case. <laughs> and really glad well, I went with people. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, but yeah, obviously I must have had some, some subconscious knowledge that that's something important. And it meant that I could still birth at the same hospital um, that I wanted to, and that we wouldn't be separated. Um, mm. Well, separated, but still at the same hospital. Um, so they took me in for a tour of the special care nursery in the morning before my C-section, which Again, was really um, tough because it's not what you think is going to happen when you have a baby. Um, you know, you 
I mean, I had paid huge amounts of money to do a hypnobirthing course. And, <laughs> yeah, and my birth plan had been, you know, whatever needs to happen to have a safe delivery but avoid a C-section if at all possible. <laughs> so I had been pretty loose and flexible and still that's the one thing I don't it. want. Here you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, you know, I, I say the only silver lining to all of that is that I got to completely avoid labor. So mm -hmm. I don't think that's something that I'm overly disappointed at missing out on. Um, and I think too, because it was a, I mean, a planned C-section, it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't elective in that we were sort of choosing to have it, but it was planned not emergency. go through however many hours of labour and then be rushed for an emergency. Yeah. Um, so it was as calm an environment as it possibly could have been. Um, and, you know, all the doctors and anaesthetists and midwives were just lovely. Um, Did you have and, your mum or a support person there with you? Yes. So my mum and my best friend were meant to be my um, birth support people. Mm -hmm. So my best friend stayed at the hospital with me the night before the birth. Um, yeah. And then my mum who'd been with me there the whole day, she'd then gone home, slept, came back the morning um, the morning of and so she was in theatre with me and she then because obviously we knew that Gracie was going to be going straight to the special care nursery um, so mum was able to then go with her there so that she wasn't yeah, left alone yeah yeah so I don't remember but my mum tells me that they had you know lovely relaxing music playing and um, you know all of that but I honestly barely remember any of um, any of that. Uh, so she was delivered safely. Um, and then in the pediatrician's words afterwards, um, it took a while to get her going um, or to get her breathing. Um, so she needed to be... Um, resuscitated there in the delivery and the theatre. Um, again, thankfully, I didn't see that or really know that it was happening. Um, and after they did get her going, as he said, <laughs> um, they were able to quickly bring her over to me for about, I think, about a minute. Um, which is more than I thought I was going to get. They'd sort of pre-warned me that I might get to see her in there, but I might not. Um, That's tough. So that was really special to actually get to see her at least. It wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't having the baby come out to your chest and have that, you know, golden hour of skin-to-skin -skin time like I had expected I would get in that lovely hypnobirthing <laughs> I was going to have. Um but at least I got to see her and I know that lots of um, lots of premier mums aren't that lucky. Um, and then, of course, because I'd had a C-section, I had to wait 
all day until um, my anesthetic had worn off enough that I could stand and transfer into a wheelchair to go and see her. Oh, um, yeah. And so by the time I, by the time I was able to go and see her, she had, you know, already had so many um, blood tests and a chest X-ray and she had had another blue episode and needed to be resuscitated again. Um, so there was that sort of thought of is she going to die before I properly get to meet her? Um, but she didn't. Um, and, um, yeah, I was able to go and see her briefly that evening um but of course I was recovering from surgery um I couldn't really spend a lot of time there and she was still quite unstable at the start um you know her blood sugars were very very low thanks to the gestational diabetes um she couldn't like they couldn't um stabilize that she obviously needed um a lot of support for breathing um she needed antibiotics because uh, she'd had a lot of fluid on the lungs um yeah she wasn't able to feed at all that first day they were just working too hard to stabilize her blood sugar levels again um and then the next day so this was all um the 30th of December, which also is my brother's birthday. So she oh, not only decided to come in the wrong year, she was meant to be a 2023 baby and she just snuck into 2022. Um, but she decided to take her Uncle Matt's birthday. Um, <laughs> so I was able to see her the next day, but I didn't actually get to hold her until um, – the day after that, so the 1st of January was the first time that I got to have her out of the isolate for a little bit and hold her, um, which was a wonderful way to start the new year. Thinking that. Um, yeah, and then she, she spent uh, about three weeks in the special care nursery. Um, so she came home at 37 weeks, which is pretty fantastic. Um, considering that start that's pretty awesome yeah yeah so that's what they had originally said was the aim that you know about 37 weeks she would be able to come home but then we had um we had a few more hurdles um anyone who's had a premie knows that it's sort of you know one step forward two steps back sometimes um she I think it was third or fourth attempt at going off oxygen that she stuck and actually managed to stay off oxygen. Um, she had a few more breathing difficulties um, with reflux that would cause her larynx to spasm and her to stop breathing. Um, so then moved to thickened feeds, which she then couldn't take through a bottle at all. So she had to use her nasogastric tube for every feed. Um, mm which put us further and further away from going home because she had to be tube-free to go home. Yeah. Um, so then I had been told to sort of expect more like going home about her due date, um, which, again, was really devastating when you think you're getting close to going home 
Um, and then, you know, the goalposts keep being shifted. Mm. But she didn't pay any attention to that. She um, she actually in the end pulled her own feeding tube out um, and they decided, oh, well, let's just see how she goes without it. Um, and she stayed off of it. And so we went home a few days later really unexpectedly. I have quite big ideas of what she's going to be like as a teenager. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. The, uh, the determination um, and persistence, shall we say, has not stopped at all. So you finally got to go home at 37 weeks. Was your mum able to stay with her that first day while you were recovering from the C-section? Yes. Um, So mum would sort of, run back and forth between um, the nursery and my room, like taking lots of photos and videos and then coming back. And um, But also it was my um, brother's birthday, so in the evening they went out for a birthday dinner and whatnot. Um, but, yeah, she spent, she spent most of the day back and forth between us so that I could keep keep seeing her as as much as possible um and imagine my, that be pretty hard on her as well because it's like your granddaughter and your daughter and you just want to save them yeah and you know the the early breathing issues um in the operating theater I didn't see them but mum did um and you know she was there as they were racing her down the hallway to get her to the nursery in time. Um, So all of that that I still find really traumatic, um, I think it is absolutely traumatic for mum as well because she was even more of a witness to it than I was and, yeah, trying to sort of balance being there for me and being there for Gracie um, and... You can only have um, two people in the special care nursery um, and not two people at a time, like two people total for her stay there. So, um, you know, my best friend that was meant to be in the birthing um, suite with me, she still stayed that day as support for me. Um, But, you know, she was meant to be one of the first people to meet Gracie and she couldn't. Um, you know, my, my dad didn't get to meet her until, um, I think the day before she came home from hospital. Um, yeah, so that was really tough, but I'm also so, so lucky that my mum was there, um, and was just an incredible support through the whole process because, you know, Gracie stayed in hospital for that long, but. I didn't, um, so I of course had to go home and leave without her, and I had a C-section. I couldn't drive myself, um, so Mum would drive me in and out a couple of times a day. After that, she would stay at the hospital for hours with me. Um, you know, late evening, you'd get a phone call that something had happened, and she would just, you know, would just race back in there and. Um, yeah, she really was just the best support I could ask for through all of that. So once you finally did get to come home, 
How was life with a newborn? Was it what you thought it was going to be? Uh, well, it was terrifying to have a home after all of that and sort of think that, you know, I'm used to having nurses tell me what to do with her all of the time and make sure everything's okay and what do I do now that it's just me? Um, and she, in the nursery, they had called her like, the chilled out baby she was always calm she was always you know you could put her down and she'd just happily look around and drift herself off to sleep and that is not the baby I brought home <laughs> um I don't know what happened but I brought home a very um loud baby right. <laughs> um a baby who did not sleep um she Poor thing. She had terrible reflux, um, has. She still does have it. And so she was just in pain all of the time um, and she wouldn't settle being put down. Um, it was obviously much worse being on her back. She didn't sleep more than about 30 minutes at a time, even overnight, um, and she would not sleep at all between about 6 p.m. and midnight. She was just too unsettled. Um, so I was operating on, you know, maybe one to three hours of broken sleep a night. Um, again, would not have been functioning if it wasn't for mum mm. staying over a few times a week and helping. Um, so that was all really tricky. Um, I think I'd always had in my head of, how much I love babies and the newborn phase is going to be so precious and sweet and lovely. And it was, and I, you know, I loved all the time just sitting and cuddling her and having nothing more important in the world to do than, um, you know, than holding her. But it was also a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And we're at about 10 months now, aren't we? Yes. Has things improved now? They have. Um, she still has terrible reflux, but she um, has medication that really helps with that. So she has gone from being a really unsettled baby to just the happiest, most interactive, just wonderful little girl. Um, this is such a fun age and she, I mean, look, she still doesn't sleep. <laughs> um, it's it's a bit better than it was, but it's um, not one of her strengths. Um, she has many. Sleep is not one of them. Um, but, you know, she just, she has the most incredible little infectious laugh that she does about a thousand times a day. Mm. Um and the highest pitch squeal I've ever heard that she also does about <laughs> a thousand times a day. Um, and she's just so engaged in absolutely everything we do. She loves being out and about and with friends and going to different playgroups and, um, you know, song times and everything. She just wants to be out and about and social and she just really enjoys life. Yeah. And, and you, oh, okay. Oh, I was just gonna say, and I really enjoy life with her because of that. That she's just 
she most of the time really is a joy to be with. Yeah. A few hurdles to overcome at the beginning, but now it's getting to be more what you expected life was going to be like as a Solomon, do you think? Yes, yes, absolutely. Now we are in that stage of, you know, we have a pretty good routine most of the time. Um, life is mostly pretty manageable um, on my own. Look, we still have great support from my parents. Um, but, you know, we're, we're in a good rhythm, just the two of us, and we get to do all of those fun things that I thought being a mum would involve. Um, and it's just the best. I love getting to share everything with her and to always have my little bestie with me and, um, and still have lots of cuddles because she's still only um naps if i'm holding her <laughs> um, <laughs> right so we get lots of quality cuddle time every day um yeah and you know we have a wonderful support network of friends that i had had before having her that are still um wonderful supports but also so many people that we have met um since i had her mm-hmm. um you know, we've got a wonderful um, premie playgroup and support group that we go to that kind of understand that aspect of our life. And we have some wonderful solo mum friends um, that, you know, we see every week and we chat to every day and that, you know, they really understand what solo parenting is like. And it's so lovely for our kids that, you know, they're all born really similar ages and so they will grow up their whole lives knowing other donor conceived children and and it'll just be normal and yeah do you find you have quite different conversations between the, the different groups of friends yes <laughs> although there are you know there are definitely some common themes like I think there are some general parenting things um that we can kind of share with everyone. Um, sorry if you can hear her screaming in the background now. Life, um, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Uh, bedtime, not a fan. Um, yeah, so there are definitely some general things, but there are also things that I think you can kind of only talk to other solo mums about because other people just don't get that part of our life. And mm. I'm so thankful that we have people who do get that part of it. Has there been anything that surprised you from doing this on your own that you weren't anticipating? Um, not really, to be honest. Um, I think the things that have surprised me were general parenting things like how hard um, sleep deprivation is and you know, that sometimes um, sometimes you get, you know, touched out and exhausted and all of that. And I guess some of it is solo parenting related because, yeah, sometimes it might be easier to have somebody come home and help of an evening or um, that. But also so much of the time I'm thankful that it is just the two of us and that, you know, we don't have to, 
involve other people or ask, you know, plan with other people. Um, we can just do what works for the two of us and, yeah, and it's a pretty great life, just the two of us. Have you given any thought to whether you'll seek out donor siblings or the donor in the future? I am a little bit on the fence about it. Mm -hmm. um, so there is a sibling registry with the California Cryobank. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've been on there. I've registered her birth. Um, so I know of some donor siblings that are out there. Um, and I think at this stage, I would like to have that information accessible to her at whatever point she wants it. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of keen to do a bit of that background information searching, um, but I don't know whether I will act on making connections at this stage mm -hmm. or whether I'll wait till she's a little bit older. Um, I kind of go back and forth <laughs> between that. Um, in regards to the donor, um, I don't know what our options would be for possibly seeking out um, information prior to 18, but absolutely once she is 18, I will 100% support her in in making contact if that's what she wants to. Um, you know, I have all of the all of the donor information um, for her to look through. Um, so she obviously will always know she's donor conceived, but, you know, she will have access to the information about her donor as, as often or as little as she wants it. Yeah. And do you get visibility through the California Cryobank of whether there are any siblings in Australia or just at the same Yes. Uh, yes. So they, uh, they list what country they're from, mm -hmm. um, so I know at this point she has, well, of the people who are registered on the registry, um, she has one sibling in Australia and the rest are all in America. Could be so, an excuse for a Disneyland trip at some point. Exactly. There's got to be a reason to go to California, right? <laughs> <laughs> and if there was anyone listening to this that's kind of just trying to work out whether this is the right journey for them, is there any advice that you'd give them? I would say think really carefully about it and make plans so that you, you know, if it is something you want to go through with, try and have, you know, have that support network in place. Think about some of those what-ifs. Um, it's the most amazing thing I've ever done, um, but I'm very glad that I went into it very thoughtfully and having considered um you know having considered the things i would need the support i would need all of that um you know i'd love to say just jump in do it it's the best thing ever and i do believe that but um but it's also a huge thing to take on so i think it's something to really think about and make sure that you are ready um before diving into it but if you think that it's something you want to do you will never regret it and what are you most looking forward to for you and Gracie in the future 
I think um, just watching her learn new things and discover new things. I love watching her reactions to things. Um, so I'm really excited to do lots of the holidays and the you know outings and just little home traditions, the two of us, um, and just kind of watching her learn and discover um, and Christmas. I'm really looking forward to Christmas. There's <laughs> um, Christmas this year. Yes. Yes, and I can't wait to make all those special little Christmas traditions and, yeah, I think just life. I'm just looking forward to experiencing all of the things that life has to offer with her. Beautiful. Yeah. And last question, how do you think becoming a mother has changed you as a woman? That's a really hard one um, because it's amazing how quickly you forget life before having a baby. Um, I think I'm probably more open um now you know as a as a mum you kind of get into oversharing with everybody about everything um like a solo mum in there is so much worse isn't it <laughs> yes there are just no no boundaries um but I I think having Gracie has forced me to be a bit more social and put myself out there and make connections where I possibly wouldn't have otherwise um, and her life and my life is much richer for her, for it but um, yeah it's probably taken a bit more confidence and um, you know having to be a little bit less of an introvert um, now that I have her um, yeah and I think it just it just changes you right to the core of, you know, you just can't imagine life without that little person and you kind of can't imagine who you were before before you were a mum. And maybe I'll rediscover some of that when I'm not on maternity leave and my life isn't purely revolving around her. Um, but Your life is going to revolve around her forever now you know that. <laughs> yeah that's, this just is life now isn't it <laughs> you just um, try and squish out the things into it as well <laughs> yeah yeah hands down the best thing I ever did so it doesn't matter who I was before her because I have her now and that's really all that matters well that seems like the perfect way to end and I can't wait to see her as a very determined teenager so thank you so much <laughs> yeah. for sharing your story Lisa thank you I'm Alicia and this is the No Need for Prince Charming podcast, bringing you stories of Australian solo mums who created their own happy ending. If you like what you heard, please follow or subscribe to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes and leave a like, a review or share with your friends to help others find it easier. Bye for now.